welcome back to Roy on Rescue. I wanted to take this opportunity actually to actually go through some of the inbox for the Roy on Rescue. There's a lot of emails that come in that I'm not able to get right to because either um, time constraints or the fact that we've already done a Roy on Rescue episode. Um, but I think sometimes when those videos get buried deeper and deeper into the Roy on Rescue YouTube archive or the WordPress RoyOnRescue.com, um, it's easy to, well, it's understandable. You wouldn't dig all the way through it to try to find that. There is, however, a search bar, and by all means, take uh, advantage of that. If you type in kind of the first, you know, words of your topic that you're looking for, we've got almost a hundred and some topics in there, I think. Um, a lot of these uh, reoccurring questions have already been addressed, but by all means, you know, science is always changing, technology is always changing, and I never mind readdressing the same issue twice. I just want to make sure that I get to all of these different particular questions and give them the timely response that they need so that we can either get you to the help that you need or um, get you the training that's going to help save a life or protect somebody. Um, but you know what I thought I'd do is I thought I would just go through some of these um, emailed questions. So bear with me as we work through these. But I, I thought I would just do kind of a, it's Monday morning. Um, and I thought what I'd do is just kind of put together a collage of different emailed questions. Um, I'll try not to reveal any of the particulars about the person, keeping their identity safe. Um, and I'll just kind of go through. I might just use a first name. Nobody really knows their last name. So I might just go ahead and do that. But um, <clears throat> so here's one. And they asked um, uh, in regards to their choking and I can't th get them out of the wheelchair. So you remember that episode um, where we showed how to address an individual who's in a wheelchair. Maybe we can get them out. Maybe we can't get them out. In this particular case, we could not get them out because they were too large or it was an awkward situation and we were unable to get them out. Um, the question was, but won't that make the object go further down the throat? I'm thinking what they're talking about is as we lean the person back, the fear is, is that now they're laying on their back and they're already choking. Could it actually, you know, lodged further down the trachea? You know, yeah, sure. Maybe, um, you, you might ask that question too, if they pass out and they land on their back, is it a potential that it could go down further? I mean, there's a lot of different reasons why the person could actually um, get the object lodged further down. You know, in most cases, you got to remember, your airway is the size of your pinky. And um, sometimes it feels like it's, you know, this big. Um, ideally, it feels that big. If it doesn't, you might be dealing with some kind of obstruction or asthma or something. But in most cases, when you can breathe well, you know, you're actually moving all your air through the size of your pinky. <clears throat> now, on top of that, you have these larynx, these two cords that open and close as we talk. They vibrate and we take a breath. They open up and the air comes in and then they, they close when we swallow. Um, they also close and clamp shut when we aspirate. And that could be saliva, water, food, other forms of liquids. Um, normally that's about where that obstruction is, either right at the top of that or just below it or even right in it and it's clamped shut. <clears throat> We're going to do those chest compressions which forces trapped air up the trachea to pop that object out. Um, if it moves down a little bit further, ideally if it's 
a you know solid enough occlusion that they can't get any air in or out. What we're hoping for is to forcefully um, press down on the chest to to bring that trapped air that's in the lower lobes of the lungs, move it out of those lower lobes up into the dead space or the tracheal area, and and like a cork gun pop that object up either to the gag reflex where they'll vomit and get the rest out or they'll be able to, it'll be visual and we can go in and sweep in an unconscious patient, ideally with a gloved finger, reaching into the side, sweeping behind the object and then pulling the object clear and then trying to give a couple breaths. If the individual is conscious, obviously if it gets to that point, and they can feel it, they'll spit it out, they'll cough forcefully, it'll come out the rest of the way, they vomit, etc., and we know it's clear. Yeah, there's a little bit of risk, you know, laying the person down, and especially the individual is not going to feel real good about it. But in an emergency, this thing is already lodged, or we wouldn't be leaning the patient back. So it's not going to move it that much further down, in my experience, to worry about that. And if we're able to lay them down and actually do chest compressions deep and fast and blow that object up and out, that's going to be ideal. So uh, that's still going to be, per the latest ILCOR guidelines, that is the um, the best treatment we can do. And again, remember I said too, if they can stay sitting up and we can come around behind them by removing the arms of the, the wheelchair, coming around to the sternum and go directly into the sternum, that's ideal. It's when they're too large to do that. Now we're in a last-ditch effort EMS is not there yet. We don't have the McGill forceps. We don't have the suction tubing, um, the French catheter, uh, the J-tube. We don't have any of that stuff, of, or the tonsil tip, rather. We don't have any of that available yet, possibly. So that's why we're leaning the patient back doing chest compressions. So I hope that answered that question. Okay, moving right along, let's get to our next question. Okay, so this next question comes in from Chris. And Chris says, hey, Roy, like your videos, um, I got a question on the chest trauma one. If chest trauma is catastrophic, in example, an aortic bleed, won't CPR just pump the blood out? Uh, I thought the idea was to deal with major bleeding before CPR. Well, I think he kind of answered his own question. Um, it's a good question, Chris. And, and I think what you're really getting at is arterial bleeds of the extremities or external arterial bleeds, <clears throat> where every time you do a chest compression, you may or may not see a pulsation of blood. Um, ideally, and let's address that first. I'll get to the aortic um, rupture or aneurysm in a second, but uh, let's talk about the externals. So you see bright red spurting blood. If it's spurting blood, we know they got a pulse already. So we don't have to do CPR. We can go right to the extremity or to the wound and put an occlusive dressing with direct pressure um, ideally direct pressure over a non-fractured limb. If it's a fractured limb, um, we still have to somehow control that arterial bleeding. The newest, latest guidelines, and I'm going to get a little spicy here, the baby out with the bath water guidelines that I don't necessarily agree with. Um, they've simplified them to the point of almost not being useful in certain cases. Um, we used to do the pressure point management above the fracture site, which would buy us enough time to, to clot, to splint, and then to wrap with a pressure dressing. That's not being taught currently. Um, is it still effective? Yeah, I think it still has effective principles uh, uh, that can be applied. Um, 
I teach per the guidelines because you need to have an accredited CPR certification, first aid certification, but now we're talking Roy and Rescue. And as far as I'm concerned, there has been a lot of effective pressure point management. We used to do it in kidney dialysis when we had an individual who had um, a bleeding issue with their, um, with their port, you know, which is basically a blood vein that's been reattached to an artery and it, it kind of blows that up. Um, big, and then that's where their their um, dialysis needles go in. Um, sometimes they wouldn't stop, you know, especially if we had them on Coumadin or something like that, uh, blood thinner. And, you know, direct pressure would be great, but if we could go up above that and do some direct pressure management, you could almost slow that, that bleeding right down um, without uh, necessarily affecting the peripheral circulation. So I still think there's a time and a place for arterial bleeding management with pressure point management and especially because what if you can't put direct pressure on a fracture site now the the national guidelines might argue with me and say well that's what tourniquets are for however tourniquets are being argued too right now um, a little bit back and forth um, we you know there's definitely a time and a place for tourniquet usage as well and so I guess if you weren't comfortable doing pressure point management, the pressure point management wasn't working, you had a fracture, you didn't want to put direct pressure on that fracture, causing it going from simple um, or a complete fracture into a compounding fracture, uh, yeah, you might have to deal with a tourniquet at that point. Um, now let's, let's quickly move that to the, the person that has got um, a problem with bleeding uh, and they don't have a fracture. Direct pressure. Um, good direct pressure over the arterial bleed. You know, for most people, six, seven minutes, it's going to be all but stopped, and then we can put a, a dressing over that bandage. Remember, we don't remove it. It'll take the clotting factor with it, and then we start from scratch, potentially, and we have to start all over again. So we want to just keep that pressure dressing on there and apply another clean one over that if it gets soaked or saturated, and then when it's under control, we begin to wrap the actual extremity you can see that in our Pro First Aid videos under Bleeding Control by going to ProFirstAid.com, click on the video tab, and get into some of those free trainings and, and make use of them. Uh, but that's a great way to manage the bleeding. And then we monitor the patient to make sure they're not going into shock, which they might be already in early signs of shock, pale, cool, sweaty, rapid pulse. But as long as they stay conscious, they keep their pulse, talk to us, we're in good shape. Now let's say they go into unconscious state, now we begin CPR. The wound has already been addressed. But if you come across a patient who's got a history of, of serious bleeding, they're laying in a pool of blood, but they're not breathing normally or not breathing at all, they're not conscious, and they look like they're turning blue around the lips, and we gather that they are in cardiac arrest, we will begin CPR immediately. Ideally, if you had a second rescuer, that second rescuer could address the bleeding issue, bandage it, keep it from leaking anymore, but we're going to go straight to the chest compressions. And once we get the heart beating again, the bleeding becomes an issue again, then we can address the bleeding issue. But non-beating hearts don't leak blood, and we're not going to pump the blood all out of them in most cases by doing CPR. In fact, if they've been in cardiac arrest for any time, Chances are that wound is clotted off already. Clotting factor starts pretty fast. Um, and we can just go straight to <clears throat> full uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. Quickly to address the, the um, aortic rupture, um, 
there's nothing we can do to control that. And that is a major cause of death in severe traumatic injury, especially sudden deceleration traumas where people are behind the steering wheel in head-on accidents. Um, that person is probably, if they're already in cardiac arrest and they, that's the internal bleeding, there's nothing we can do to treat that bleeding. We're just going to begin CPR uh, and hope for the best. Um, that's something that has to be repaired surgically in the hospital and no amount of any type of treatment other than cardiopulmonary resuscitation is going to do anything for this individual. So as much as we want to be able to do something, um, time is the of the essence. And if it's a severe enough rupture, if they've lost too much blood, this person's probably in an irreversible um, shock syndrome due to hypovolemia, um, due to bleeding out in inside the thoracic cavity. And um, CPR is still warranted um, unless they have obvious signs of morbidity, which means they're already dead beyond any type of resuscitative efforts. This could be decapitation, rigor mortis, um, cold, and it's a warm day, um, you know, to where you really think that this is too far gone. That's going to be a judgment call on your part. There's no one going to tell you you were wrong for doing CPR. No one should tell you were wrong for starting CPR, even if there was already signs of um, morbidity, meaning they've already been dead so long that they're biologically dead and there's no recovery from that. Um, you're going to do the best you can do. You're a true rescuer, and you've got to make that judgment call. So, um, if you, so that's just subjective, and everybody's got to make that decision. But that's how we would deal with that. This is going longer than I thought. I, I don't want to keep this going any longer than this. I still have more questions to answer. It'll probably be in a part two of this video series. So uh, until next time, keep on rescuing. I hope this helped, and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.